We're in Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah 5, for those of you new to Scripture or new to the Bible, go to the middle of the Bible in the Psalms and turn left a few books and you'll find Nehemiah there among the historical books. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, Nehemiah and the people of God have been dealing with external resistance, but then a surprise comes with internal resistance in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and their words. I took counsel within myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of the Lord, the inerrant word of the Lord, always stands. You may be seated. Well, miscalculations can be at least an embarrassment and at most very expensive. Take the biathlon track at the Sochi Winter Olympics several years ago. Uh, the biathlon track was supposed to be 1.6 miles long. However, when it was measured days before the actual event took place, it was found to be 130 feet short. Happily, uh, that was fixed by lengthening the track, though at first everyone was embarrassed by the clear oversight. In 1997, a miscalculation 
got really expensive. The Mars Climate Orbiter was sent to Mars to orbit the planet as a weather satellite. However, in 1999, the $125 million orbiter was lost. As the orbiter came too close to the atmosphere of Mars and disappeared. And why did that happen? Well, because the NASA team used English units while a contractor used metric units in their measurements. And then there is the miscalculation of all miscalculations, the Big Dig in Boston. For those of you who don't know what the Big Dig is, it is a 3.5-mile tunnel uh, that uh, goes underneath the city of Boston and rerouted Interstate 93. So you could go under Boston and not over it as the uh, interstate once worked. Originally, the Big Dig was stated to, slated to fi be finished in 1998 at a price tag of a whopping $2.8 billion. However, plagued by escalating costs, design flaws, and scheduling overruns, it was finished nine years later in 2007 at a cost of $14.6 billion. Miscalculations can be embarrassing and expensive. And guys, that's what we find exactly today here in uh, Nehemiah chapter 5 as we look at the financial climate and the various cultural and social financial miscalculations that were done during Nehemiah's time in the 5th century B.C. there in Judea. Nehemiah, the city builder and the warrior, as we saw last week, uh, was trying to restore a people, and he was trying to restore a city by rebuilding a wall, really rebuilding the city and ultimately rebuilding the people themselves. But as we've seen in the last few chapters, he and the people kept running into resistance trouble, pushback. And they experienced it both externally and internally. Externally, by the enemies from surrounding nations like Sanballat, Tobiah, uh, Geshem the Arab, among others. But the surprise comes in Nehemiah 5, where actually internal resistance start to show up within the city itself of Jerusalem. In fact, in Nehemiah 5, a series of financial miscalculations puts the people in a very difficult economic situation that seems to bring the community to an almost halt, almost like a really bad recession or even a depression. So as we look at today's text in Nehemiah 5, here's the question we're going to deal with. How does Nehemiah respond to financial resistance and even worldliness due to miscalculations among the Jews of his time in Jerusalem? Well, there'll be a five-fold answer, and I'm going to be a preacher today, all right? I'm going to have five R's for you, okay? Recourse, repentance, restoration, renewal, and revoked rights. Recourse, repentance, restoration, renewal, and revoked rights. Well, let's look at the situation before we get into the R's and talk about how they got here and what was going on in that time. 
Here's the situation starting in verse 1 through 4. You can see how things blow up from within with resistance. And verse 1 says, and There arose a great outcry of the people and uh, of their wives against the Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, With our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So apparently, after they started building a wall, and they were really excited about building a wall, and then as they're getting excited, the external resistance comes by threatening nations, threatening war and violence against them, things start bubbling up from within, and that's often how things happen. Whenever we pursue the kingdom of God, there is external resistance which raises up internal issues within us about our concerns and worries in life. And as a result, the people start to cry out. This is the same language that shows up in Exodus 2 of the people who cried out under oppression. And they started to cry out for a legitimate need. The poor were feeling the heat of life. The poor felt it in three distinct groups. In verse uh, 2, it says uh, in the first group, it says that uh, they were, there were whole families with wives and kids who were starving. They weren't able to eat. They were starving because there was a famine going on. And we might add, the husbands, the men of the family, were probably working on the wall during this month or two that they were building the wall and didn't have time to go out and take care of food to actually work the fields. These were, if you will, the poorest of the poor in that day. These people were the kind of folks who lived in apartment complexes and could barely make rent. The second group of people shows up in verse 3 of our text that says uh, that, that this group uh, was, if you will, middle-class homeowners, much like us. They were feeling the pinch of the famine as well. The economy had been going down for a long time. Health care expenses were up. Inflation was up. Income was down. A dollar did not stretch as far as it normally would. And as a result... As it says here in our text, they were having to take out a second mortgage just to pay for their food. Can you imagine that? Having a home, land, taking out a second mortgage to take care of your basic needs? That's not good. Another financially group, uh, stretch group shows up in our text as well. Uh, in the next verse, this group complained that they had to borrow money to pay taxes. Remember at that time, to live under a superpower, you had to pay taxes or tribute to the great king, in this case, Artaxerxes in Persia. And I might add, not only do you have to pay that tax, but you had to pay local taxes to pay for local services, to even pay local officials. Taxes were being put on top of taxes, and they were having a particularly hard time paying the king's tax. And they were having to do it, if you will, with their credit cards. Can you imagine that? It's like the, the rank and file of the Jews, the large group of them, were saying, we have to pay for taxes with our credit cards. We have to go into debt to pay off a debt. Not good either. A distinct financial trap. So, what was the financial and structural solution to that time as a result of the poverty and the bad debt that was going on. Well, verse 5 tells us a shocking truth. Look at verse 5. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as, our, as their children. 
Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Did you hear that? They were selling themselves, in particular their own kids, into indentured servitude, slavery. Remember back then, slavery wasn't normally like the evil of American slavery with African Americans. It was indentured servitude. You went in debt. You couldn't uh, file bankruptcy. You had to go to work to pay it off. And so they were giving up their own kids uh, because they were getting so deep into debt. The result was they were feeling the pinch. And they were feeling the pinch from a unique group of people, a surprise group of people, as it says in our text. The nobles and officials who ran the nation. That's right, the nobles and officials who ran the nation and were, had been working with Nehemiah. They were, if you will, the loan sharks of the time. And apparently, uh, they were charging high interest rates as they gave loans to the people. And they became so high in their interest rates, they were putting the people in deeper and deeper debt. At this point, some of us, especially the hardworking middle class, uh, and come up with our common American response, which is, well, get to work. Get a job. You know? Don't you think you just go work harder? And even if that means you put in more hours over at McDonald's, work. But here's the thing you don't understand is this was a really depressed economy, a lot like Detroit is right now. And sometimes the problem with the poor is not that they aren't working hard enough because they make it clear they want to work. Did you notice in our text? They said, we do not have the power to help ourselves. Now, sometimes it's not the people not working. Sometimes it's a system. Sometimes it's a system. And in this case, that's exactly what was happening. You had an extreme version of the haves and the have-nots. And how do I know that the system is a problem here? Well, look at verse 6 with me. It says this. Look Look at Nehemiah's response to this. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel in myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. Nehemiah's response is instructive here. Did you notice he got very angry? Now, at first you're like, wait a minute, is he losing control? Is he, is he kind of freaking on the guys and raging? Well, I would say this. What's happening is, is he's looking at the situation and the injustice of it, of the system, and he's thinking this is not the way it's supposed to be, especially with brothers. And his response is anger at the abuse of power. He gets angry at the system, particularly the nobles and officials. And these are the guys he'd been working with, remember, thus far. They were exploiting people. Now, this is a reflection, really, of how God responds to those who take advantage of the weak, of the poor, and of the broken. He gets angry with righteous anger. Because it is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not what we're headed for in heaven and a new heavens and a new earth. Let me be clear about anger, especially with men like me. (laughs) Righteous anger is rare. 
Righteous anger is rare. More often than not, uh, anger that we have can often be uncontrolled, where it's controlling us, not us controlling it. In this case, uh, Nehemiah is controlling his anger and reflecting really the wrath of God. And you're thinking, well, Christians, should Christians get angry? And the answer is yes. Jesus himself had wrath. Remember him in the in the uh, temple, clearing out the temple with those who were abusing financial stuff and, and exploiting God's people in their sacrifices? Jesus said, uh, really, Ephesians 5 says, be angry and do not sin. That's the real art. But yes, we can get angry, but we don't sin in the process. So, what are we to do about this? Well, the officials were apparently taking advantage of the people the affluent were taking advantage of the oppressed. And you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the movie The Hunger Games. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's a story about really the extreme version of haves and have-nots where there is this city where the capital, where uh, the most affluent and the best dressed lived, and they had a, a swimmingly nice life. And then there were the rest of the people in various districts, the oppressed who barely made it and were working hard, if you will. And there was one Katniss, of course, who came out of District 12. And uh, she's the one who defied the system, as you've seen in the movies, perhaps. Well, this same thing is going on here. These people thought, if you will, the nobles and officials, that the poverty and oppression of others was entertainment. Nehemiah saw this kind of economic exploitation and responded with anger. And then he did an interesting thing after that. It says he took his own counsel. Now, what's that about? Remember, these officials and uh, these nobles were those who had been working with him. He didn't want to be lobbied, cajoled, or even bullied by powerful people. So presumably, he went and spent time with the Lord in God's Word and prayer. I bet he studied the law of God, maybe with Ezra's help. And he looked at what does God's Word say about how we deal with the poor, not what is our cultural impulse. As a result, he came out of that time alone, and he came out as a judge. So here we go. Uh, Nehemiah the city builder turns into Nehemiah the warrior. Now he's Nehemiah the judge in his own community. And in these texts, it talks about how he puts the nobles on trial. And we're going, wait a minute now. He puts them on trial in front of everybody? What is that? That seems like vindictive. That seems mean. Nah, you don't understand. The nobles and officials, this is ironic judgment. The nobles and officials had used the people and had shamed them in their poverty by taking their lands publicly. And so an ironic twist, Nehemiah in his prayer and his time before the Lord said, we're going to do the same thing to you. You reap what you sow sometimes in this life. He publicly shames them. With this case, so that they can't even say a word in the trial. <laughs> and why did he do it? Because they were practicing usury. U-S-U-R-Y. That's the old term for charging exorbitant interest rates to people. 
when you give them a loan. Usury. God was against usury in this case. And he gives ironic judgment to publicly shame these men. And there's even more reasons for that. It's not just the usury. It's what was put in our text today. The noble officials, these nobles and officials, were among the Israelites. And they had been delivered from slavery back out of Egypt. Remember that? How they cried out as a people and were delivered out of Egypt in slavery? And God delivered them in extraordinary ways. And these same men and their generations before them had been delivered out of Babylon's enslavement at the exile. And they were able to come back home. They had experienced freedom from God on multiple occasions. And yet what they were doing is they were enslaving their own people. Family doesn't treat family like this. This brings us to the second response. The first response was a recourse for the poor. But the second response to the economic resistance going on within the people was repentance. Uh, Look uh, at verse 10 with me. Verse 10 says this, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this this exacting of interest. (laughs) Did you see what Nehemiah just did? He told on himself in the trial. He said, you know what? I've been doing this for my servants. I confess. This is wrong. In other words, he puts himself under the judgment of the word of God himself and repents. And repents. He turns to God and follows the way of the Lord This is an important point. When a community grows in any way or changes, it must start with the leadership. And Nehemiah is driving this home in this very public venue that they, as the leaders, are to change. It's like he's saying, look, I've been doing this with my servants. I'm going to change my ways. Follow me. This is key for any change in a kingdom community, especially in how we handle money. The leaders of the church must lead in the proper use of God's resources, not just to the church budget, but even their own budget. Leaders have to repent first. And here's what that means. For you, for me, for leaders. You ready? When it comes to money, we don't do unto others as is done unto us. We do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Very different angle on how we handle finances. Let me stop here for a second. Let me ask, what does this have to do with us right now? Well, the answer is this. We live in the world, and we are prone with our finances to worldly actions with them. Remember what worldliness is? Worldliness is anything that looks sin, look normal, and virtue looks strange. We are called to a countercultural life in the use of money as individual Christians in our families and even in our community. 
And when it comes to money, we ask different questions than the world does. So that we ask this, do we think it really is our money or God's money? Do we think of money with ambition or with worry rather than purpose and hope that God will take care of us? Do we believe that a little bit more is exactly what we need or that we learn contentment or really godliness with contentment, which is great gain? Do we love our lifestyles more than Jesus Ooh, that one hits home. Jesus himself said, you can't love God and money. You will hate one and love the other. And so that means that the way to strike at, worldly, at worldliness, especially in finances, comes in our text right here. In verse 9, he says, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? He wants them to walk in the fear of God. To walk as if God is your first reference point with regards to resources and money that he's given you. To start with him, not even yourself, not even your family's needs or or demands. Start with him first. And the reason why, in this case, he said is, look, the reason is people from the outside are looking in at how we're handling ourselves and they're laughing at us, taunting us because We can't get the log out of our own eye. Key piece of reform in any kingdom community is financial integrity. How you understand money as a gift from God, but not as the focus of what we do in life. Fear the Lord. Fear means pause and remember that the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Everything you have. Everything I have is God's, first and foremost. Nehemiah was calling the community to a financial repentance. Uh, And that's because the financial uh, miscalculations were undermining the holiness of the city and the people. So what does he do next? Well, three more quick R's in our text. Are you ready? The first is restoration in verse 11. Nehemiah talks to the officials, uh, and and he calls them to return everything back to the people they had taken uh, the resources from. They had been robbing the poor, if you will, stealing from them. But did you notice in our text an echo of something that we've talked about before as a church? He talks about giving them back everything even though they may not deserve it or have worked it off. That sounds a little bit like Jubilee. Leviticus 25 teaches that every 50 years, God's people back in that time were to actually reset the economy financially by giving back lands that had been sold to to families who had sold them, by releasing prisoners, by letting debts pass on and be forgiven. As a result, this was a change in how they treated each other financially. Their impulse was to be forgiveness of debt, not exacting of debt. Please note, this is not 
in Jubilee some kind of socialism or communism. It is a marker. Jubilee is a type to show us what it will be like when Jesus comes back one day and restores the material creation of a new heavens and a new earth. Well, what's that got to do with us today? Well, let me tell you, when I preach from this, sometimes our tendency to read like uh, the people of God in the Old Testament is to say the analogy is what they did in their nation, we're to do in our nation, America. But what you don't understand is the holy nation of God now is the church. The analogy is the church. That we are different in how we handle one another relative to Jubilee. And what is our version of Jubilee? It's generosity. Generosity is our version. Giving up resources so that our own poor who are in trouble at times are taken care of within our own midst. We give and give generously just like the early church did. Did you see the reading from Acts 4 earlier that Daniel read? How the people were giving up so many resources. And I mean, even um, Barnabas sold this big piece of land and laid the resources at the feet of the apostles. In other words, they looked out for each other financially. They cared for one another in their material flourishing. This is counterintuitive to our age where really taking care of your own financial needs is usually the end game for Americans. But in the church and among Christians, generosity is something different. The kingdom uh, and generosity is how we get a taste of restoration now. It is only possible to be generous if you realize how generous God has been to you. At the cross, we are great debtors with our sin. But Christ bled a brutal death for you and for me so that we might taste the riches of God's blessings that we don't deserve, but he gives so richly to us because he loved us first. When you internalize that, the forgiveness of sins, the richness of being a child of God, all that he's given to us, suddenly you realize it's not mine. I'm to use this for the resources of God's kingdom. Fourth response from Nehemiah shows up in another R, renewal. In verses 12 and 13, Nehemiah has the nobles and officials take a covenant vow before everybody, sit there raising their hands saying, I promise to do this. He even invokes a curse. Did you read that earlier? <laughs> In this verse down here is a scary. Verse 13, he invokes a curse on them, shaking his thing and saying, may you lose all your resources, be shaken out of them through trial and trouble if you don't keep up to this. You're going, wow, this is intense. That's pressure. And I know what you all are thinking as good Americans, just because this is what I was thinking when I was reading this. I was going, well, wait a minute. Does this mean we take care of the poor and they just live off of us all the time? They never step up? And the answer is biblically, no. We are not the saviors financially. But we as the church together, collectively, 
are called to be instruments of the Savior's work. As uh, Corbett and Fickert say in their great book, uh, When Helping Hurts, poverty is never just a financial thing. It is fundamentally a spiritual, relational, emotional, material thing. Our job is simple. When somebody falls in a hole financially, we don't throw money down to them in the hole. We don't call down with pious words, be warm and well fed. You know what we're supposed to do as a church? Get out in the hole with them and help them get out. That's Christianity. Now, some of you may say, well, wait a minute now, what if people want to stay in the hole? Well, our job, our next job is not just to get down in the hole with relief, but it's also to help them get out of the hole with rehabilitation and development so they are giving to others in time. That's what our job is in Christian care and mercy for the hurting and the poor. It's like this. Ephesians 5 says, a man shall work so that he may share with others. That's the point of your job, of your call, is not just that you develop a living and a lifestyle for yourself. It's so you can share. That's true for the poor who may struggle for a season. That's true for the middle class, the upper class. You name it. Our job is to share. Fifth and final response comes in verses 14 through 18. Nehemiah does a shocking thing. If you go read it, you'll find this. Nehemiah is the governor of this area of Judea. He's been appointed by Artaxerxes himself. And so by rights of being a governor, he deserves to be paid through taxes from the people. Again, that's what they would do. Remember, king charged a tax, and then the local governors would charge a tax so they could get paid and, as well as do other things. And sometimes those guys would be loan sharks themselves, and they would take more taxes than they were due. But you know what? You know what Nehemiah does? He gives up his rights. He revokes his rights to the resources that come from taxes. He denies getting paid through taxes so that it wouldn't be a burden upon God's people. The amazing thing about this, guys, is he's being generous. And he's giving of himself in every way imaginable. And you've got to ask, why? Why? Why would anybody give up their resources? Why would anybody be generous and even not get paid what they're due so others who are in trouble can live better? Well, look at verse 19. It tells us why. This is great. He prays this prayer. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. Now, you read that prayer and you think, wait a minute. Isn't that a little selfish to pray that? Nope, it's not selfish. He is sacrificing by giving up his pay, but he's also remembering where he's going. When he says, remember me for how I've served these people, he's saying, I know I'm not getting a reward in this life, but I know there's a reward coming. 
a reward beyond my wildest dreams and hopes in a new heavens and a new earth with you. That's his hope. He's praying for rewards. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute now, rewards, we're saved by grace. We don't get rewards, do we? You've got to understand rewards. No, we don't earn rewards. But in this life, our resources have a ceiling, right? We can only go so far. It doesn't matter how much money you have. But in heaven, our reward and salvation is the floor. And God, by his grace, and out of his compassion and what God has done in our lives in this life and not been rewarded in this life, gives above and beyond the floor of salvation itself. That is our hope as Christians. That was his hope. He was going to get a reward. In other words, he had an eternal purpose to what he was doing. This is the gospel. The gospel that Nehemiah is reflected in Christ. Christ came into our world to set things right, just like Nehemiah. He came to do it through his life, death, and resurrection. As the King of kings and Lord of lords, he gave up his rights. And he gave up his rights to be with us. He gave up his rights to all the riches and glory that he deserved. He was sacrificial. He was generous with his time to the point that by the end of his life, he had no place to lay his head. He didn't own a house. He didn't have a 401k. He died an ignominious death on a cross. And guess what? All he had were his clothes at the end, and they took those from him too. He became poor on the cross that we might be rich spiritually in this life and materially and spiritually in the presence of God for eternity in a new heavens and a new earth. He did this so we could be forgiven and enjoy a jubilee ourselves one day. We work for restoration, renewal, because we know what is coming. Don't miscalculate the purpose of your resources in life. You were made to share, and that's the stuff of God that goes on forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have...